Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus and your host. Welcome to this edition of the College Commons Podcast, where I look forward to a conversation with Dr. Jason Lustig. Jason Lustig is a lecturer and Israel Institute teaching fellow at the Schusterman Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. His first book, A Time to Gather, Archives and the Control of Jewish Culture, which came out from Oxford University Press in 2021, traces the 20th century struggle over who might, quote unquote, own Jewish history, especially after the Nazi looting of Jewish archives. Dr. Lustig is also the host and creator of the Jewish History Matters podcast, which is online at jewishhistory.fm. Jason Lustig, thank you for joining us on the College Commons podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with our shared endeavor of podcasting. You produce and host a great podcast of your own called Jewish History Matters, which, by the way, had me eating from your hand on the basis of the title alone. (laughs) (laughs) I love the fact that you get into the weeds and the long form discussions, but I want to ask you a short form question. What has surprised you and delighted you, you, a traditionally trained academic historian, most in launching into a popular oral medium such as podcasting? I'm always happy to, you know, to be in conversation with people, which, um, which for me is one of the most exciting things about doing a a project like Jewish History Matters. Uh, What is really exciting about working with such a project that reaches an audience is that most scholarship doesn't reach a broad audience. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, I think that the structures of the university system as it exists uh, erects kind of a gigantic paywall uh, in terms of getting access to the most recent scholarship. You have to pay to get access to articles if you're not affiliated with the university. Books can be expensive, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, forget about, you know, say in the pre-COVID world, parking on campus. There are all these barriers to entry uh, to getting access to the the latest and greatest of what's going on uh, in terms of the intellectual spheres of Jewish studies and beyond that as well. And it's just been really exciting to see the response, you know, uh, you know, to the project that there are people who are reaching out to me, you know, and and saying that they're learning a lot from the podcast um, uh, because it really is, I think, exciting to see the ways in which the public. I think really does care and does think that these historical and intellectual issues do matter. You know, I think it's really just exciting to see people engaging with it. One of the major hacking uh, scandals in the past, I don't know, 20 years was uh, hacking into JSTOR, which is one of the uh, providers of academic articles. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's relevant to your comment, Jason, is because this guy named Aaron Schwartz broke into uh, JSTOR and tried to make it available to all because the costs of these articles and books is really high. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that a lot of people don't know about the story of Aaron Schwartz, which is really interesting in the context of podcasting, all these kind of pieces actually kind of come together because Schwartz was actually one of the inventors of the the format known as RSS uh, or really simple syndication, uh, which is uh, actually the the technical basis for how podcasts function even up until today. So I mean, I think part of what's interesting about that whole story, you know, and maybe that also provides kind of a segue into thinking about this question of archives and access to the past, but it's this question of what does it mean to give access, you know, to, to make things accessible when we're talking about um, information and, and knowledge and so on and so forth. 
Right. And when it's not accessible, who's mediating it? And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. So let's let's dive into this topic. In your book, A Time to Gather, uh, you make an important and frankly, very surprising claim. And it is this, that one of the mightiest power struggles of the Jewish community is the struggle to control archives. Musty, impenetrable rows of ledgers, minutes, business letters, and God knows what. Why on earth would those dust-filled stacks be the source of a communal tug of war? Yeah, I mean, I think that when people think about archives in the popular sense, you know, this image that you just brought up of the archives as a you know this this kind of dusty storeroom uh, that nobody goes to uh, is 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 very widely sort of viewed. That's what an archive is. And uh, and sometimes that's the case. And so the question is, why is it that archives are sort of exciting? You know, what is it about it that, as you said, becomes kind of this power struggle over who gets to control Jewish culture as a whole? And um, I think that the reason why this is the case, uh, especially when you're looking at 20th century Jewish culture, is that historical archives, they have a very powerful uh, symbolic meaning in as much as they represent the past uh, at a time when so much is changing so rapidly. Uh, and, and this is really amplified in the context of the Nazi looting of, uh, you know, of Jewish archives alongside libraries, artwork, all sorts of other kinds of cultural property, you know, and other property as well. Like the Nazis are these huge looters, you know, all across the board when we're looking at Jewish life and culture. Uh, so I think that 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 history of the 1930s and 40s really puts this in a particular kind of light, you know, where we see that this question of Jewish archives, yes, they have this powerful symbolic importance, but it's also very practical. I think that it's important for us to understand what is taking place in this time period of the 1930s and 40s as not only the Nazi attempt to murder millions upon millions upon millions of Jews, but also to control and destroy Jewish culture as a whole. And so the archives play an important role here, both in terms of the practical control of Jewish culture, and then also that the Nazis are actually taking hold of these things and uh, you know literally wresting them from from Jewish communities around Europe. And then, of course, it's this question of well, what's going to happen to them after the Holocaust? You know, who's going to get them? What's going to represent uh, in terms of the rebuilding of, of Jewish life in a uh, post nineteen forty five world? So we take the archives um, at their word <laughs> that they are indeed repositories of the story of the experience of the Jewish people. One of the compelling aspects of your book is that you bring it precisely where you just ended your comments now to the post-war period. And it brings, therefore, the nascent state of Israel into the question. And so I'd like you to think out loud with us a little bit about the Zionist angle on this question of gathering and owning archives. In the early 20th century, in the uh, in the Yishuv, in the Jewish settlement in Palestine, later on in the state of Israel, there is this broad impulse to gather together Jewish culture. This manifests itself in a number of different ways. There, there are a whole bunch of uh, Zionist uh, cultural figures who were involved in a project known in Hebrew as Kinus, uh, which is this idea of gathering together and even kind of curating Jewish culture in, in the process of constructing a new Jewish culture in uh, in Palestine as part of the Zionist movement. Uh, later on, you have uh, the idea of the kibbutz galuyot, the ingathering of the exiles, which is, of course, a uh, an idea which draws from the Jewish liturgy. 
and from a certain kind of a messianic vision of you know a future time when uh, all of the Jews would would come back together in the land of Israel, uh, and which manifests itself in, in the the early fifties and beyond in the the mass immigration of Jews from around the world uh, to the newly established Jewish state. So there are a whole bunch of different ways in which we can see the the history of Zionism and the Zionist project later on the state of Israel being deeply tied in with this idea of gathering together. Jewishness, gathering together Jews, gathering together Jewish culture. And this manifests itself in the archives uh, in a particular way, uh, which is that in the aftermath of the Holocaust, the Western allies created in conjunction, uh, especially with Jewish leaders in the United States and elsewhere, a process of restitution uh, to try to help to return to Jews property of all kinds that had been looted uh, in the course of the Nazi regime and the Holocaust. And, uh, and so there's this big question, which is being dealt with in the late 40s of what do you do with things like libraries and archives and all sorts of other things uh, which have been stolen? Uh, and in many cases, uh, there may or may not be heirs to whom it could be returned. Uh, and this is part of the building up of the Hebrew University. This is part of the creation of art museums, like what would eventually become the Israel Museum in Jerusalem uh, and so on and so forth. But it's also a story about archives. Um, and so the gathering together of archives uh, was part of this bigger process of the of the movement of Jewish cultural goods to the newly established Jewish state. And I would argue that actually the process of gathering these archives to Jerusalem was a parallel to the broader political process that was taking place at the time. Uh, and it's also part of the effort for Israel to try to demonstrate itself as a Jewish state, so to speak. And, uh, and I'll say two very brief words about what I mean by this. The first thing is that I've already indicated the mass migration of Jews to the newly established uh, state of Israel. Uh, so between 1948 and 1953, you have somewhere in the range of 700,000 to 750,000 Jews who immigrate to Israel, you know, more than doubling the Jewish population, which was about 600,000 Jews in May of 1948. So you have this mass migration of Jews under the heading of, of what many Israeli political leaders like David Ben-Gurion, he called it the kibbutz galiot, like the ingathering of the exiles. And you have Israeli archivists, figures like Alex Bein, uh, who would uh, become Israel's first state archivist in 1956. You know, he was one of the leaders of this restitution effort to try to bring uh, Jewish historical archives uh, to Israel. And he called it the kibbutz galiot of the past, the ingathering of the exiles of the past. Right, So they are drawing upon this broader uh, idea of what's taking place and saying, you know what, the process of creating a Jewish state is not just about bringing all of the Jews or as many as possible to the state of Israel, but it's also about bringing Jewish culture and Jewish history to the state of Israel. And this ties in with the second point, which is that the effort to gather archives was not just about creating a research institution, you know, and so on and so forth, but it is about the state of Israel trying to indicate both for itself and also for the wider world that in some ways it represented a successor to European Jewry, uh, which had been destroyed in the Holocaust. And now who's going to take up the mantle of the construction of a new Jewish culture post-1945? Well, Israel is in a very strange situation, right? It's a much smaller Jewish community than the American Jewish community. They're trying to demonstrate and indicate symbolically and practically that they are taking on the mantle of European Jewry. You've considered the question of German restitution of cultural patrimony to Israel, as you indicated just now, and you argue that this restitution represents something much bigger than the return of property, such as we usually understand Holocaust reparations in the popular discourse. 
in this case, the return of archives extricates the sources from their native Germany. And it seems, at least potentially, to cast aspersions on the Germanness of the Jewish identity in favor of something like the Israeli project that you described. And instead, it tells a different story. Elaborate on that, if you would. I think that one way to start here is to think about the title of the book itself. What does it mean to talk about a time to gather? You know, if you open the book and you look at the very first page, you know, I, I explain the way in which you look at this, this post World War II moment, and there's this debate about what's going to happen to these archives. And uh, and Judah Magnus, who uh, was the president of Hebrew University at the time, uh, you know, he was an American-born reform rabbi. He wanted to uh, bring the archives of the Jewish communities of Italy, you know, at the time to, to British Palestine. Uh, and Cecil Roth, who was a scholar of Italian Jewry uh, based in Cambridge, he writes back and forth with Magnus. Roth is is deeply connected with the Hebrew University. His brother at the time is a professor there. Uh, and, uh, and so they're corresponding back and forth. And, and Roth writes to him and say, you know, I heard about what you want to do. We shouldn't do this, right? We should not send these archives to Jerusalem. And he writes, this is a time to gather, not the reverse. Uh, and so part of what we see there is that this process of gathering you know, to some people is bringing things together. To other people, it's a process of scattering. And the same thing can be said about the idea of return, right? What does it mean to return the stolen property which had been taken by the Nazis from Jews in Germany and also from throughout Europe? What does it mean to return it to the Jews, right? To whom should it go? You know, does sending archives from Germany to the state of Israel, you know, is that really returning it? You know, because it's actually taking it away from where they were created and and, and their historical location and sending them and sending them to a new place. Um, and and so you know, there's a lot going on here in terms of thinking about what is the nature of these communities, both before World War II and also afterwards. Uh, you have Jews in Israel who are saying, like, look, we are from a city like Hamburg, right? You know, uh, there's a whole group of Jews who who were born there and end up in the state of Israel and say, look, we support the the removal of the archives of the Hamburg Jews and sending them to Israel because we're all here. Right now, of course, there were still Jews in Hamburg in uh, in the 1950s, uh, but many of them, you know, were themselves refugees actually from Eastern Europe who uh, had been uh, sort of forcibly moved to Germany towards the end of World War II as part of the death marches uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and so there's this huge debate where the archives, I think, indicate the the internal tensions about what is going to happen in the post-World War II moment. Uh, what does it mean to gather together Jewish culture, right? To some people, gathering is scattering, right? To some people, returning is actually removing. And and then there's this whole debate as well about the nature of Jewish communities in Germany post-World War II, the nature of Jewish community in Israel, the nature of Jewish community in America, and so on and so forth. The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, live conversations with social and cultural influencers on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship, Community Connect, ready-made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning, The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons podcast, in-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. 
For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect. And now, back to our program. With some irony, keeping on the theme of German Judaism, let's talk about the Hebrew Union College, uh, which, of course, was a German-Jewish creation in the United States in many, many ways. And I want you to tell us about this curious thing from the lore of my institution, the Hebrew Union College, called Gotthard Deutsch's Card Index of Jewish History. Tell us about that. HUC tended to hire professors uh, who were coming from from Europe, European professors, especially Central European German speaking uh, regions. And this is kind of parallel to the broader process of higher education in the U.S. at the time. Actually, uh, there was no uh, Ph.D. program in history, for instance, in the United States. You know, the first one was in 1870 in, in, in Johns Hopkins University. Um, but anyway, essentially, like the U.S. was importing professors in the same way that that American Jewry was importing rabbis, right? Which is part of the reason why Isaac Barry Wise established HUC in, in the 1870s. Um, and so just the same way, you know, to get professors, you know, to teach at his college, he he brought in uh, professors from uh, from Europe, figures like Moses Buttonweiser, the professor of uh, Hebrew Bible, for instance, Gotthard Deutsch, the professor of history is another one. And so Deutsch is this really fascinating figure because he uh, had this idea to collect and catalog essentially every single individual piece of information about modern Jewish history and also contemporary Jewish events uh, into one place. And so this is a kind of a preface to the American Jewish archives in some respect, because Jacob Rader Marcus, who was his student uh, in the 1910s uh, and his successor as the professor of history at HUC, continues not the specific card catalog project, uh, but this idea of collecting and so on and so forth. So starting in uh, in the early 1900s, Deutsch uh, starts reading the newspapers, reading all sorts of books, going through them and sort of picking out individual facts, right? You know, there was a pogrom in this city, you know, five people were killed, you know, and something like that, um, you know, or there was an article in, uh, you know, in, in such and such a publication where somebody said some anti-Semitic thing about the Jews, or there was a... Jewish person who, you know, flew an airplane, right? You know, it wasn't just like about deep things about what's happening in terms of Jewish history. It's also a lot of things about, you know, Jews who were hunters or, you know, Jews who were in business and, you know, all these, all sorts of different facts. And he organized them based on country, based on time and uh, theme and so on and so forth. And over the years, he generates this, this tremendously encyclopedic uh, inventory of quote unquote Jewish facts, as it were, you know, spanning about 70,000 index cards. So this is still there in the reading room. But part of what's interesting about this project is this vision of monumental collecting. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Jacob Rader Marcus and the place of the American Jewish archives in American Judaism. The American Jewish archives is one of the most significant Jewish archival institutions and projects of the, of the 20th century. It represents, I think, uh, a really important element of the history of, of HUC itself, right? And also of the um, sort of the development of American Jewish culture and history on a broader scale. So Jacob Rader Marcus creates the American Jewish archives, both for his own research purposes. He's a historian and not an archivist, which is really an important distinction, right? He um, is interested in creating a place where historians can get things done, 
So Marcus is doing this for research purposes, but I think it also represents his vision, again, not just about the past, which is, I think, the crucial element of the book and my research here as a whole, that the archives are not just about the past, but they're also about the future. Marcus sees American Jewry as the future in, in a post Holocaust age. Uh, one of one of his books, which actually I think has the, the greatest legacy of his, is a collection of sources, The Jew in the Medieval World, which is still used by many professors today as a source book you know, when you're teaching uh, medieval and early modern Jewish history. Uh, so Marcus gets to start in medieval Jewish history, and he shifts gears somewhat dramatically in the course of the years of World War II um, to study American Jewish history. And, and he frames this as that he sees that European Jewish history is over. This is this is his view, uh, and that American Jewry uh, is the future. Uh, and so he wants to study American uh, Jewish life and culture as a result. And this really manifests itself in the American Jewish archives, which I think really represents this this total reorientation that he has as a scholar, and also his his vision for for Hebrew Union College itself. You know, Marcus uh, was part of this, and Marcus believed uh, in gathering everything together in a single place. Uh, so it could be useful for researchers, but he also believed, especially in the context of the Cold War, that uh, that basically uh, bringing everything together in one place also had certain disadvantages, right? Like what would happen in the nightmare world of a nuclear exchange uh, with the Soviets? Uh, and so for him, he basically advocated that everybody should create multiple copies of their archives and store them off as a backup, as it were. Part of the story here is there's this deep contrast between the Israeli archivists and with Marcus. They're both interested in gathering things together, but the Israelis are m much more invested in this idea of physical originals, if they can get their hands on them through restitution. If they wanted to, 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 to own them, as it were. Marcus also likes originals if he can get them, but he is also uh, really interested in, in, in photocopies. Uh, and, and this is really how he builds his archive uh, in, the manner that, in the manner that he does. So I think that, that part of what is happening here is the different meanings of gathering together Jewish culture uh, in, in the post-war era. Part of what I'm arguing here is that the story of the archives is, to go back to one of your initial points, it's not just kind of this question of dusty files that, you know, uh, that, that come from the past and that don't really matter anymore, but actually that it represents some of the vital forces of what's taking place, you know, basically in modern Jewish history and in contemporary issues as well. Your response, together with some of our previous points in the conversation, raised really important themes about access, uh, duplicates, especially in the digital age, as increasingly archives are uh, online and the content is readily available to everyone often. Uh, and, and it raises the question of what uh, the archive actually does. And it does seem like uh, Jacob Rader Marcus was perhaps a, a bit of a prescient collector, as it were. So good, good food for thought. In some ways, yeah. <laughs> I want I want to close this conversation, which I'm enjoying so much, by eliciting a personal story from you. You refer in your book to individual scholars' archive stories, by which I think, and maybe you'll correct me, I think you mean those great moments of discovery that the archival scholar, at least the artful one, packages into great dinner conversation, and by means of which they forge a professional identity. I was hoping maybe you would tell us one of your archive stories. One of the best stories that I can kind of refer to, I was sitting in the archives in Worms. Worms is a, is a small city in, in Western Germany, uh, near not that far from the border with France. And uh, it's a site of one of the, the, the longest Jewish settlements in Europe, um, going back about a thousand years, if not more. And um, 
so a couple of the cases of restitution I talk about in the book are the archives in Hamburg, which I mentioned before briefly, um, and also the archives in Worms. And in, in Worms, there's a kind of a whole story about um, uh, the archivist Friedrich Illert, uh, who was the city's uh, municipal archivist, who stole the archives actually not from the Jews, but from the Nazis. Uh, and he hid them in the, in, the, in the city's archives during the war in order to protect them. And he wanted to give them back to Jews who would resettle in Worms. You know, when we are accessing digital archives, yes, it's very, very kind of like practical, right? You don't have to travel across the world. You know, it's better in terms of our carbon footprint, certainly during COVID times, you know, it's not really easy to travel, right, uh, by any means. But being in the location of being in Worms and, and spending some time there uh, really helped me to understand the broader context of what's taking place in this, uh, in this debate over the future of Jewish life in Germany um, and the question of, who should these archives be returned to? Because Illert, he believed that the history of Jews in Worms was central to the history of Worms itself. What I understood by being there and this kind of archive story uh, is that that if you go to this, if you go to the, the municipal archive of Worms today, it's a really rich archive of the history of the city. But the location is really critical because it is in it is in the it's the second floor of what is known as the Rashi House. Right. And so what is really interesting is that Illert and then his son, Georg, who takes over for him uh, in the 1960s, basically they 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 see Jewish history as being part of the city's history itself to the extent that that when the Jewish museum is created, right, they put the state or they put the city archive on top of it. Right. So there's this kind of overlap, as it was, between the Jewish history and the local history. And uh, and this to me was like a, a like a revelation. And I think that if I had just like had access to these things online, I never would have understood this in the same way as actually being there. But the broader story here is about the connection between archives and identity, you know, how it is that people's self-identity, uh, you know, I think today we sometimes talk about you know, how your identity is bound up in a document. It's like, you know, are you what your passport says, right? You know, is, you know, is your name, what is written on your driver's license or what if you want to change it, right? Or questions about gender identity. You know, it, you know are you, uh, you know, a man because that's what it says on your birth certificate, right? You know, or it, there's all these, these different aspects to it, right? But in so many ways in modern and contemporary society, identity is bound up with paper. Right, individually, the, the people who are in these restitution battles in the 1950s were asking, like, you know, to what extent do archives as a whole, archival collections, offer a kind of birth certificate to different Jewish communities in the aftermath of World War II? Collecting archives, it's not just about creating research institutions or about preserving the past, but it's but it's bound up with questions of Jewish self-identity in a really broad sense. I love that image of a document, or in this case, we might extrapolate to an archive as being a collective birth certificate uh, of a people and, and, and what they do with that and then how they shape the future. And with that thought, I want to thank you, Jason Lustig, for taking the time and to congratulate you on the publication of A Time to Gather. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect.